Welcome, Sam. Glad to have you here on the Product Love Podcast. Why don't we start by uh, giving us a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. My name is Sam Boonin. I'm currently the VP of Product Strategy at Zendesk, which is kind of a fancy term, which I'll get into. I've been at Zendesk for a little over six years, mostly in product management roles and some go-to-market as well. And I've been in tech for probably over 20 years at this point. Don't ask me how old I am. Combination of product or product marketing roles across small or large companies, pretty much all around bringing new and innovative products to market. Awesome. So why don't we start by talking about scaling product management as a company grows from a small team to a public company? You have, you have a lot of experience there. Yeah, that's certainly uh, what I've been doing at Zendesk. And I think I've seen this as a, as a relative pattern. In the early days, typically... First of all, scaling product teams is uh, super challenging and interesting and hard to get right. But when you get it right, it's, it's, it's pretty rewarding. You know, in the early days, product management, especially at startups, is kind of around understanding and executing on founders' visions. You know, what was the reason the company got started to begin with? And then, you know, depending on your startup philosophy of choice, if it's lean startup or whatever, it's all around pivoting and adapting to those pivots. So changing business models, changing product focus things along those lines. If you're lucky, it seems like the next thing that happens is to deal with the customer demands that you're inundated with, or you know, whether it's feature requests or, or you know, even changes in your business, uh, lots of customer input. And then if you're really lucky, then you have to deal with the crushing loads of technical debt that you got from pivoting a lot, building a lot of MVPs, dealing with a lot of customer demands. And then it's finally in sort of a fifth stage that you're dealing with some level of steady state where you've got a mature product function, you've got mature products, you're building some new things, and you have a steady state of, say, 60 to 70% of folks are working on sustaining and building existing products, 20 or 30% are sort of building new stuff, and then maybe 10% are doing some, you know, wacky big bet kind of stuff. So again, going through that sort of those phases of scale and product management teams is you know, super hard because you went from typically a founder who's a product person to teams of 20 or 30 or even 50 at that point. So let's talk a little bit more about one of the problems you mentioned, that being, you know, dealing with product and technical debt. Any thoughts there? Any advice? I mean, just to be aware of it, I've had lots of debates about whether technical debt exists or not. (laughs) I'd recommend not having that debate because it's kind of a no-win argument on either side. I think what we try to do is just be mindful of the decisions that we make as much as we can, realizing that it's sort of inevitable. So having the discipline as a product person to not build something or, you know, if, or can you build it as, you know, whether it's a one-off as a customer, I mean, we've, we've had problems where just as an example, we have, you know, too many databases and too many technologies to count. And it's very tempting to apply the next technology to the next problem that you're facing so the discipline to see whether your existing infrastructure, your existing product, can, your existing stack can handle what you need to do, it's super hard to do that. I think we've had some successes. We have a, a good API, a good set of APIs in our products at Zendesk. We have a, an app framework, which allows you to extend the product, some of our products using APIs and installing apps to extend functionality that's helped a little bit with sort of product debt and feature bloat, but I don't have a really good pithy way of describing how to prevent it. But it's just something I feel like you have to be super mindful of and understand it when you do it, that you're going to incur this debt. 
So now I have to ask, since you mentioned it, you know, having this argument, does it exist or does it not? I, I think it does, but I get frustrated. Typically, um, product people who like to incur a lot of debt are the ones that do it, the ones that argue that it doesn't exist. It's kind of like arguing about the national debt or the deficit about whether it's important or not. And people who are like, oh my God, we're going to go bankrupt as a company and China's going to you know, control the economy if we're not careful with our national debt. And then other people are like, you know, we could be highly rev- leveraged as a country. It doesn't really matter. It's sort of like having that debate is kind of an impossible thing to talk about. So talk to me, you, you talked about, you know, moving from a founder's vision. So when you're that first product team member that isn't the founder, what's that like? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have this at Zendesk. I came in when we were about 100 people and about three or four product managers, but I've had it in the past. And I think that's the hardest job as a product manager to have is to be the first you know, PM outside of the founder. And again, very specific to, to startups and very specific to product driven companies. But it's super hard because you have to be, because first of all, product people tend to think of themselves as being pretty smart. And, you know, if not knowing all the answers, being able to get all the answers. So there's a little bit of the ego in being a product person, but you really have to, the reason the company exists is, and to a certain extent, the main sort of thrust of the company is to realize the founder's vision and to complete building it. So, and then typically product founders aren't disciplined product managers. So they're not, you know, going out and seeking the right amount of customer insights. They're not really balancing, oh, that's going to be too hard to build. They're visionary. So, you know, sort of checking your ego at the door and really being a servant almost to the founder is super important. So it kind of goes against a lot of what product managers think of themselves as what they're good at. So, you know, I've done that a couple of times myself. And it's, again, it's definitely the hardest jobs I've had is being sort of the first product person into a startup after the founders. And um, again, no easy sort of recipe for doing it successfully, but I think it's a really important thing for every product professional to go through to be able to do that because it's just another set of constraints that you have to operate within. And, you know, there's nothing more rewarding than, than when it does work. I've been involved in some, some ones that didn't work and some ones that kind of worked, but you know, when you can realize that founder's vision and you can sort of work well with the founder and sort of get the energy that, that he or she has, you know, from being sort of that true entrepreneur, it's incredibly rewarding. So let's talk a little bit about building out those disciplined product teams. How do you teach product managers? That's a big question. Obviously, I've been lucky enough to be on on some really good product teams myself. And and how I learned was primarily, I took some, you know, some product management classes and stuff, but I mostly learned from from teams I've been on. I think the, um, and everybody will tell you that there's no real sort of formula for how to learn. You can't get a, maybe you can these days, but you you can get a CS degree. You can't really get a product management degree. But, you know, from my perspective, I think the two most important things in terms of you know, the two things that I really want to teach any product manager, number one is, you know, without a doubt is the concept of customer empathy. It's so important to really understand and put yourselves in the shoes of the customer and the users of your products. And depending on your business, the users of, you know, that that can be more than just one user, certainly in B2B settings. And the second thing is to really understand how to be collaborative with the rest of the team. You know, people will talk about the magic triangle of product manager, engineer, and designer, whatever the case may be, whatever the, how the company sets up, but being able to really be a part of, you know, to collaborate with the product, you know, the other members of the product team that are doing it. How do you actually teach them that? 
you know, modeling good behavior is probably one of the most important things. Once you get, you know, beyond two or three or four scrum teams and you have, you know, two or three or four examples of product managers and again, the combination of PM engineer and designer, they'll kind of learn that. But, you know, again, the PM is the one that has to bring the customer empathy the most. Designers obviously do a lot of that with just the, you know, the huge advances we've seen in, in UX and product design and sort of the empathy on that side. But again, I'm going to say that word empathy a lot in this podcast because I think it's just so important. I would completely agree with you on the empathy side of things. It's, it's an essential, I would say it's, it's one of the most, if not the most essential skill for product managers. Yeah, definitely. So now you have a really personal, you have a strong background on the go-to-market side. How has that helped you? Yeah, I've sort of bounced back and forth between, I guess, what's now called product marketing and product management. You know, typical sort of background you'll see. I'm not an engineer by trade. I was a liberal arts major in college and eventually got my MBA after kicking around for a little bit. And uh, obviously, I'm biased because of my experience, but the go-to-market experience that I've that I've had, I feel like, is more valuable than any technical skills I could bring to my job and my career. And I actually think that unless you have a really technical product or you're a super specific company, like Google is an example that hires very technical product managers, I think go-to-market expertise is in a lot of ways much more important than technical skills. I've spent most of my career in B2B. You know, B2B is, you know, the go-to-market implications are so important for how you build products. At Zendesk, we're a, you know, we started as a SaaS web try-buy model where we were driving, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of trials a week and people would swipe their credit card and buy products without them interacting with a human. Our business is a little bit different now, but just understanding the go-to-market implications of that in how you build products is so important, you know, compared to, you know, how do we actually turn a tweet into a support ticket? How do we do, you know, wrap workflow around how a company can handle a particular support incident, whatever the case may be. So I just feel that like understanding how go-to-market, how the go-to-market of a company is impacted by every product decision you make in a lot of ways is kind of more important than, or can be more important than like what's technically feasible, how to build something that's going to be durable and technically capable. So you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased because I'm a go-to-market person, but I think it's super important. So let's talk a little bit about engagement. How do you work to get and keep customers engaged? I imagine that's extremely important, especially in the web try-buy model you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different for every company. And again, I've certainly worked for companies and I've worked on products that didn't get a lot of usage and sort of had, you know, crickets of, you know, people trying it or, or even like really heavily heavy sales models where it's a six month sales cycle before people actually even try the product. But, you know, at Zendesk, because we've had this web try buy model, because we put a lot of effort and energy and we still do to getting people to our website and into a trial sort of engagement becomes really important. And, you know, when I showed up at Zendesk, it was a little bit different. We had, you know, we had probably like a two-year list of features that we had to build that we wanted to keep building out. We had lots of vocal customers with lots of demands of new features they wanted or things they wanted changed in the product. We had active user groups that were sort of, you know, why don't you build X or why don't you build Y? But the thing that we noticed that was really interesting is that, number one, when we started to instrument our product and instrument our trial a lot of people were missing some really basic things. And it came in a number of ways. Number one, we could see 
which customers implemented which features and used which features at what point in their life cycle. And the second thing is that we, we started hearing something really funny in our user groups and our forums where people were actually asking us to build things that the product already did. So there was a huge awareness gap between what our customers thought they wanted and what the product actually did in a good way. Cause we're like, Oh, we already built that. So engagement, you know, number one, we did sort of the classic here are the three or four features that tend, you know, once customers turn these features on, they tend to convert faster at a higher uh, revenue point. But we also realized that a huge thing we had to do was educate customers on what the product was already capable of doing and also come up with ways that they could solve these problems. So, you know, engagement, it's hard because even though for us, this whole software as a service, free trial, you know, give customers access to all your features is kind of old hat to people who are product managers in a SaaS world. It's still pretty new to most of the customers that are adopting it. So they're not used to, especially when your product kind of goes from early adopter to mainstream, they're not used to feature discovery and clicking around and figuring out how to do things, et cetera, et cetera. And they need a lot more guidance. And, and again, engagement is the word that we use for that. You know, if, again, uh, I'll go back to customer empathy. You have to realize that, oh, this isn't a, you know, 26 year old millennial SaaS user that's used 15 SaaS products in the last year in our world. It could be a director of customer support at a middle America company that's switching over from something that's, you know, antiquated or even a shared email. And she may need more guidance and direct engagement than you're used to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about scaling product teams. You know, Zendesk grew really fast. You hear a lot today about this triple, triple, double, double kind of, you know, year over year growth rate for SaaS companies. Now scaling product teams in fast growing companies has to be a huge challenge. Do you have any advice for senior product leaders? I mean, you know, my biggest advice is luck, try to get lucky and get into one of those environments because it's super fun to do that. Yeah, we had that similar growth that you're talking about. I think from a product team, as I mentioned earlier, we went from, I think it was four or five when I showed up and now we're at about 50 or 60 in terms of number of product managers or total people on the PM team. Uh, again, I think the, uh, the first thing is to create a strong culture and to create a culture that's durable beyond founders of product teams. What does it mean to be a product manager? Uh, what is it, in our case, what does it mean to be a Zendesk product manager? There are certain things that we do that are maybe unique or different than other product teams. And you, know, you create that culture and then you imprint it on the second and the third and the fourth product manager. And it's really informal and it's kind of hard to describe, but you see it in the practices, the way that we build our backlogs, the way that we do something called ticket duty, which every product manager has to has a rotation where they sit on customer escalations, customer support escalations. And that means they have to get to know not just their part of the product, but the whole product. Those are things. The second thing that we did, which was somewhat consciously, is that we built a balanced team. You always wind up hiring your second and third hire always wind up being clones of your first hire. It's sort of a lot of studies about this. But what we did is we made an effort to break out of that. And we hired somebody from our support team, from our customer support team, because he was, you know, spent his first year at Zendesk spending all day in tier one support dealing with all these issues. And he knew exactly, he had his list in his head of the 10 things that he would want to fix if he could ever do it. So again, the empathy that he brought from 
dealing with customer issues and you know dealing with the imperfect product that we make was incredibly valuable. He didn't have any PM skills. He learned it all on the job. I also hired, classic thing you'll see is I hired a sales engineer, somebody who was involved in pre-sales. And that's important because you know he understands how to implement our imperfect products. So how do you get around you know, feature limitations or other things in order to satisfy customer needs. So building a balanced team is, was a super important thing for us. I think where things got difficult for us is that Zendesk does things globally. So more than half of our product efforts are outside of the US, which is great for travel, but it's hard. So setting up that second office and hiring the, you know, and the third office and where we had one product manager in, for example, Copenhagen, we had one product manager in Melbourne, one in Dublin, in those places, that was the hardest is making sure that those people could learn and be a part of the greater product team, even though they were somewhat isolated. Now it's a little bit better because we have teams of people in all those locations, but that's also a really hard thing to do. So you hinted at it a little bit, you know, global giants and pulling people out of support, but at Zendesk, you've supported a product, right? That's sold to global giants, but also has a self-service model. And now I've seen that kind of bifurcation destroy companies. How, how have you and how has Zendesk not only managed it, but really been able to excel? Yeah, actually, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come to Zendesk to begin with, because I was really interested in this bifurcate. In fact, it's funny you say bifurcation, because I remember in 2012 or 2013, sort of putting bifurcation as a word into a slide in like 256 point font and going around and talking to people about like all of the implications of bifurcation in our business. So it's, it's, it's really challenging to balance it, but it's the, one of the main reasons why I think we're successful as a company at Zendesk. I think where it can destroy companies is by not having, again, by not being mindful of the balance. In our world, if you look at our support product, we're a multi-product company now. We've got a chat product, a talk product, a product called Guide, which is our customer self-service and knowledge-based product. But the core product remains support. And if you look at that product, it's still to this day, when you buy the enterprise version of that product, which is used by companies that have thousands of support agents and very complicated processes and integrate, and they've extended the product, again, using our APIs and app framework, and they've integrated into, you know, not just standard, but custom third-party systems, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same product that a startup or a small company that wants two or three agents with really basic functionality uses. It's the same code base. It's the same, you implement it in the exact same way. And I think that discipline is really important to maintain. And we think that we get huge advantages by having a bifurcated business model. Again, web try buy in the low end and sales assisted sales slash customer success slash consultative on the high end. But by having a singular code base and a single product and by forcing ourselves to always think about both the enterprise buyer and the SMB buyer, we think it makes us stronger in the end. But as you said, it's, it's super hard to maintain that discipline. And if you don't do it right, you can really hurt the company. I think one thing that, that we benefit from at Zendesk and one thing I've seen over and over again in my career is that it's so much easier to move up market than down market. It's easier to add complexity and configuration options and, you know, security roles and permissions and things along those lines that upmarket customers want. 
than it is to take a complex product and simplify it for a simple buyer. I talk to a lot of people who are trying to, people come to Zendesk a lot and say, hey, how do you guys do your web try buy thing? Or I look at some of our main competitors, especially our main competitors that have been around for a little while, and I see them constantly trying and failing to build a self-service product because it's just so hard to move down. Now, one thing you mentioned in there is balancing feedback, and I would imagine requests from the self-service side and also the enterprise giants. Do you have a particular process for doing that? I've often seen the larger dollar customers getting the lion's share of attention. How do you effectively balance that? We've been through a lot of that uh, at Zendesk, and I think we're in a pretty good place with it, although it's a constant adjustment, if you will. So first of all, our own guide product, which again is our customer portal self-service product, has feature request forms in them. So in an effort to sort of eat our own dog food, we have our own feature request forums, which customers can go and post their requests and then vote on them and add comments to them. And as you can imagine, we have a passionate and relatively large customer base. There's lots of interesting, funny comments, you know, do you guys even read this? Why aren't you doing this? Et cetera, et cetera. So we're getting a lot of voice to the customer directly from the customer by posting on our feedback forums. Second of all, we get tens of thousands of support requests or support tickets a month just in our own using of our own product because we have over 100,000 paying customers. Third, obviously, larger customers that are either sales-driven or owned by customer success teams. Our product teams tend to interact and do roadmap presentations and have conversations. And then there's internal stakeholders build this particular set of features so we can access this particular segment or go after this market opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that this is more of, a, of an art than a science, but each product team is balancing those different sets of feedback and those have changed over time. So our support product is pretty mature at this point. It's, you know, I wouldn't call it feature complete, but it certainly doesn't lack features. So you know, what, what we're deciding to build there is very much to hit, we're, we're building, we're moving up market. So we're building, you know, features that larger customers will want so we can grow the market opportunity. We have a product called Connect, which is a proactive engagement, set of proactive engagement tools where we're really getting to market for the first time. And there we're building out the basic feature set or something they case. So it's, you know, in each case of those, balancing all of the different inputs that we have from customer, from existing customers, from new customers, from internal stakeholders is really hard. I don't know of a company that does that incredibly well. We just started using a product called Product Board, which is a startup that that helps you sort of organize and structure customer inputs. And then sort of, it's like a road mapping tool. And that's pretty effective. We're seeing that get a adopted by a bunch of different teams. And, you know, anything we can do to put that structure around that is really valuable because it's, again, one of the hardest things that product teams have to do is figure out how to deal with all of the inputs you're getting to make really good roadmap decisions. When we were talking earlier, you, you described yourself as being the least technical guy on the product management team. <laughs> it's probably not true, but assuming it is, how does that or doesn't that actually matter? Well, it's, it's, I've done this a couple of times. It's good to <laughs> my boss in my first review at Zendesk, he said uh, in the review, he's like, if you were a Native American, your Native American name would be man afraid of his engineers. So I think to a certain extent, it is true that I am a little, uh, maybe not the most technical person. I use it really effectively to be self-effacing, right? To sort of say that, 
you know, at Zendesk and a lot of companies I work for, our customers are not technical. We certainly have developers that implement Zendesk or tools teams that are, for instance, putting our mobile SDK into their native apps or something like that. But for the most part, our customers are customer support agents and team leads and admins and VPs of support, and they're not technical themselves. So, you know, if customer empathy is the most important value of a product manager, then I shouldn't have to be technical and I shouldn't have to understand the technical nuances of things. Obviously, when we're making implementation decisions and, you know, as a product manager, you have to understand the the JavaScript framework that your company decides to build on is going to impact velocity a lot and hosting environments, whether you're public cloud hosted or building your own private environment, those are going to be really important decisions. But I think that you don't need to be technical. And for me, I think that because we do have pretty technical product people and we do have a pretty technical stack, I think by saying I'm the least product technical person around, it actually gives me a little bit of cred because what it tells people is it says that, you know, it allows me to tell people that empathy is that important. And and that, you know, you don't have to be the most tech, you don't have to be technically fluent to help make the right decisions, I guess is what I would say. So are you truly afraid of the engineers? I'm not. It, that was my Native American name. I'm not afraid of the engineers. <laughs> I do lose interest sometimes in the second hour of technical conversations. So one final question, three words to describe yourself. Everybody calls me snarky, which I think is a compliment because I, I, I can be pretty funny and biting at times. I think honest or even brutally honest would be the second one that, um, you know, I think that we're not as good as we think we are in a lot of cases and we're not as bad as we think we are. And I tend to call that out. I think the third thing I would say would be passionate. I I just have a passion for sort of the day-to-day work that we're doing and and making sure that we do it better, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if, if I had to do that again, I might come up with a different list, but we'll stick with snarky, honest, and passionate. I think it's a good list. You know, brutally honest is actually one of our core values. Snarky is not, but brutally honest is. And I, I would say as if I had to pick attributes for product leaders, passionate and empathetic would definitely be two of the top three. So I think you encompass a lot of great things there. Well, thanks, Sam. This was great. Enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to chatting again in the future. Great. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it.